No doubt some of you may not have spent a whole lot of time in the book of Nahum. I certainly had not until I was assigned this passage by Pastor Paul. I've learned a lot this week, an awful lot. This book, for those of you who may not know, in many ways is a sequel to the book of Jonah. And I don't think I need to review that book very long. But as a very brief review, we know that the what I like to call the reluctant prophet Jonah was commanded by the Lord God to go to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian nation. And at first he rebelled and he did not go. But then the Lord made him to go. And so he went reluctantly, and he preached a very simple, almost ironically simple message, and the entire city of Nineveh repented. An amazing story about the Lord using a very reluctant prophet to do an amazing work of repentance. Well, beloved, this is the sequel. This book of Nahum, the author Nahum wrote his book about a hundred years after Jonah had been in the city of Nineveh. A hundred years have passed, and a lot has changed. Not 50 years from the writing of this book would God fulfill the prophecy as given by the prophet Nahum, and God would allow Nineveh to be completely destroyed. Not two, maybe three generations after their complete repentance. So Nahum writes this book, this prophecy, this oracle. The audience are the people of Judah. Now, for a quick parachuting into the history here, where are we? Nahum is writing to the people of Judah around the middle of the 7th century. This is the mid-600s. The northern kingdom has already been taken into captivity about 70 years prior by the Assyrians, the very people who he is writing to, writing about. And not 50 years from this moment, Nineveh will be completely overthrown. So as we go through this, this passage tonight, Nahum 1, 1 through 8, I want us to notice a couple of things. And the, the biggest question that I really want to answer tonight, there are a couple of big questions, but, but the first would be, why did Nahum include this in his book? Well, the answer is this. Nahum included this particular passage, verses 1 through 8, in his prophecy to highlight the awesome and terrible power of Yahweh and convince his readers to seek deliverance from Yahweh's wrath by obeying him. Obedience is the way out of wrath. That's why Nahum included this in his book. The main idea of this text I'd like to make clear as well, and that main idea is this. Yahweh, the the divine warrior, pours out His holy wrath on those who reject Him. But He also reveals His goodness to those who take refuge in Him as their divine deliverer. So we have God, the divine warrior, and also God, the divine deliverer. And He is certainly both. For those who reject Him, He is the divine warrior. Brace yourself. Wrath is coming. For those of us who turn to Him in faith and and look to Him for salvation and take refuge in Him, He is our divine Deliverer. I want to make that clear tonight. Now, 
Every Sunday night, we hand out these worksheets, and I, I hope and trust that they've been handed out. So if you're a young person here tonight, what we often do is give two words that we'd like you to be paying special attention to, and that way you can keep a tally of, of how many times we say those words. Tonight, those words are wrath and deliver. Wrath and deliver, or perhaps deliverer, or maybe even deliverance. Those are the two words. So, beloved, tonight I'd like to break up this section into three major parts. Three major parts looking at God's character as our wrathful God. The first section we're going to look at tonight is God's wrath as the divine warrior. Look with me now at verses 2 and the first half of verse 3. Look at what it says. It says, The Lord, Yahweh, all in caps, He is a jealous and avenging God. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. It's said twice for emphasis. When talking about Yahweh being jealous, this is the same type of jealousy that a husband would have over a wife who is straying. God is a jealous God. He desperately desires to be close to His people. And when His people stray from Him, His jealousy comes out. It's a righteous jealousy. Not a sinful one, but a righteous one. And notice, it says that He is an avenging God. It actually says it twice. The Lord is avenging, meaning bringing wrath upon those who have done evil. He brings vengeance with Him. In the latter part of verse 2, Yahweh takes vengeance on who? On His adversaries, on His enemies. Truly, the Lord God as the divine warrior the concept of him being vengeful and full of vengeance, uh, taking vengeance and being wrathful is a terrifying prospect. It's so clear that those who reject him are destined for wrath. Keep in mind, by the way, that God has given this prophecy to the people of Israel about the nation of Assyria and specifically the city of Nineveh but it has nothing to do with where they're located or their ethnicity or their political inclinations. It has nothing to do with anything other than a spiritual evaluation of where they are. In fact, this spiritual evaluation applies to all of us, not just the people in Nineveh. If we reject Yahweh God, we are in for His wrath. Look at verse 3. Look at the contrast to what we've just talked about in verse 3. We're talking about vengeance, talking about jealousy. And in verse 3 it says, the Lord is slow to anger. We might think, He's wrathful, He's full of vengeance, here comes the wrath. We might think He might be quick to anger, but He's not. He's slow to anger. Look at His grace. Think about the grace of the Lord God being vengeful and full of wrath, and yet, also being slow to anger. He's slow to anger. And it says, great in power. Slow to anger, great in power, full of vengeance, and then the Lord, it says, will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, the guilty will not escape. The guilty will not escape. They might seem to escape in the present time, 
They may seem to get away for, uh, away with it for a time, a day, a week, a year, even 40 years. But eventually, their sin will catch up to them. The Lord will by no means ultimately clear, meaning forgive or let the guilty get out of it or go free. The guilty will not get away with it. Ultimately and eventually, wrath will come for them in this life or perhaps the next. Keep in mind that the the divine warrior Yahweh could bring judgment upon both the Israelites and non-Israelites. In fact, just 70 years prior, the Lord had sovereignly used the instrument of Assyria to bring judgment upon His people, the ten northern tribes in Israel. He had just exacted judgment upon His own people because they had rejected Him. And now He is going to bring judgment upon the instrument that He used for judgment. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, if people reject the Lord God, His wrath is upon them. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to God's wrath as the divine warrior? Well, we should fear God's wrathful character and His wrath toward His enemies. But we should also marvel at the grace He shows us by being slow to anger. That's a mercy to us. Our response should be one of trembling, repenting, and rejoicing in and fearing the Lord rightly. Rejoicing and trembling would be a really good response, wouldn't it? That's our first point. God and His wrath as the divine warrior. Our second point for tonight is God's wrath as the divine creator. The second half of verse 3 all the way through verse 5. God's wrath as the divine creator. I want you to brace yourself from for what we call theophanies. A theophany is the appearance of the Lord God in nature. And we see even many examples of this in the Old Testament whether it be a, a pillar of fire or, or a pillar of cloud or God in the whirlwind or even God dividing the Red Sea. Theophanies is Yahweh's appearances in Scripture and sadly, it often is accompanied with judgment. That's typically when we see those types of things. So look at now the second half of verse 3. It says, His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds or the dust of his feet. This has this image of Yahweh God striding, that is, walking powerfully across the face of the earth. And if Yahweh God, who made all things and holds all things together, if he were to walk upon our earth, well, then things like the clouds would be like dust from his feet. That's how massive he is. That's how powerful he is. That's how powerful he is. The clouds are the dust of His feet. We look up at the clouds and we go, ooh, pretty clouds. But God in His wrath, if He were striding across the earth, the clouds would be the dust of His feet as He walks in a wrathful manner across the earth to bring judgment to those who have rejected Him. What a a foreboding image that is. 
How about this? His way, verse 3, is in whirlwind and storm. God in the whirlwind. God in the storm. These are signs of foreboding. This is not good. This is bad. This is judgment. Look at verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. Think about what Jesus did when He was on the boat and the waves and the wind and the wind is blowing and the waves are crashing and the lightning is flashing and His disciples are losing heart. They're thinking, we're going down. What does Jesus do? He rebukes the sea and they stop immediately. Well, when Yahweh God rebukes the sea, His rebuke makes that sea dry. Think about God delivering His people from the land of Egypt. He used Moses, but by His own power, God divided the Red Sea into two parts so that the people of Israel could pass through safely. And then when they had passed through at just the right moment, and the Egyptian army was right in the middle of it, He closed the sea over them. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Reminds me of the water stories we're having here in California. But this would be far worse than what we would ever experience here. He dries up all the rivers. All the water would be gone if that would be His will in His wrath. How about Bashan and Carmel wither? The bloom of Lebanon withers. These were actual places under the control of the empire of Assyria. And Nahum is, is, is prophesying years before the destruction of Nineveh, saying, hey, if it's God's will, He can dry those places up. Bashan was a place of, of great um, fertility of the soil. It was known for it. And Carmel was known for its amazing rainfall it experienced. And yet, Nahum says, if it be the will of a wrathful God, he could rebuke the sea, make it dry, dry up all the rivers. He could make these two lush, fertile, productive, agriculturally centered places of Bashan and Carmel. They would wither if he so desired and so willed. The bloom of Lebanon withers. Lebanon, of course, was known for its great lumber. We, we see all throughout Scripture about the cedars of Lebanon and the lumber of Lebanon used in the temple and used here. Well, if it be the Lord's will as our wrathful God, no more lumber, no more life, no more agricultural uh, productivity, if you will, in these places. It's nothing to Him. Nothing at all. Look at verse 5. Look at the the tectonic upheaval that is at his fingertips. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. That's an amazing, amazing word used by the prophet Nahum. Ever seen hills melt before? I pray I never see that. Ever felt the earth shake a little bit? We probably have. That'll be nothing compared to what the Lord God could do, what he has done and what he will do one day with the end of all things. The mountains quake before Him. The hills melt. They they come to nothing. They're gone. Like like butter on a hot pan. Gone. The earth heaves before Him. Just massive, massive topographical and geographical and tectonic upheaval. 
the world and all who dwell in it. I love how it kind of goes from small to, to, to large in, in some ways. Talk about mountains first and then the hills, the earth and then the world. This is global. God is in charge of the entire globe. He has full control over the entire globe. The world is literally in His hands. And He brings wrath for those who reject Him. Passages like this should make us quake in our boots. We should melt at the thought of, of offending, and we have offended before Christ, we have offended a holy God with our sin. And apart from Christ, we would be subject to this kind of wrath. What a terrifying prospect. This is my second point here. This is God's wrath as the divine creator. How do we respond to this? We should marvel at God's wrathful intervention in the natural order, whether it be the heavens, the waters, agriculture, or the earth, as He is truly the Lord over all creation. He also has the power to create and destroy the world when and how He chooses. This power, as we mentioned before, has been demonstrated through the, the future fall of Nineveh from our context. And also just in small ways, in relatively small ways, in even natural disasters. It will be further demonstrated once and for all in the great and terrifying day of the Lord. That is a sure thing. Things like this will happen upon the earth in the end we will see the destruction and the complete upheaval of our current universe. And thankfully, after that, the making of the new heavens and the new earth. We should both fear and tremble at this divine creator, should we not? God, in His wrathful character, is both divine warrior and is also divine creator. And now look at our third point for tonight. Look at God's wrath as our only deliverer. Look with me at verses 6-8. through It says, Who can stand before His indignation? Who can endure the heat of His anger? This is two rhetorical questions. Not designed for an answer. And although the immediate audience of Nahum as a prophet of Judah, the immediate audience are the people of Judah, the questions are aimed at the nation of Assyria, and specifically the capital city of Nineveh. Who can stand before his indignation? The answer is no one can. No one at all. Nineveh was no small city. It was a great city. It says in Jonah that it was a three days journey. Whether or not that was three days uh, from one end to the other, if it was three days circumferentially around the city, or if you wanted to see all the sights in Nineveh, it would take three days. It's unclear exactly what it means. It could be all three of those. Nahum, uh, excuse me, not Nahum, Nineveh had 100-foot high walls. It had a moat around it that was 60-foot deep and 150-foot wide. Humanly speaking, it's a pretty formidable city. One of the greatest cities in ancient civilization. And yet, compared to the wrath of Almighty God, this is but an anthill in His wrath. And they stood no chance against him. No one can stand before his indignation. No one can endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire. Sounds like lava, doesn't it? 
Sounds like liquid fire, liquid wrath. Think about the lake of fire. His wrath is poured out upon the ungodly, upon those who have rejected Him like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by Him. And then look at verse 7. Verse 7 on its face seems really out of place. What in the world is verse 7 doing in a section about God's wrath? Well, as Scripture often does in a, a, a bit of a section upon a certain topic, there's often a certain quick little reminder. Hey, despite all of this, don't forget. Don't forget other characteristics of Yahweh God. Don't forget something here. Despite His wrath, despite His anger, despite His power, He is the divine warrior. He is the divine creator. But don't forget, He's also our only deliverer. Verse 7, The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. It's a very interesting use of these particular words. He uses the word stronghold when talking about the character of God and when talking about the Lord about to bring judgment upon another stronghold. But compared to the stronghold, the mighty fortress, if you will, that is our God, Yahweh, those walls will never fall down. That stronghold will never be overtaken. That stronghold will always stand. Yahweh is good. He is a fortress, a a place of protection, a place to run in time of trouble, specifically for those who trust in Him, who believe in Him, who want to submit to Him, who love Him. He knows those who take refuge in Him. And those people will not be subjected to His wrath. Those who take refuge in Him will not be subjected to the wrath that He is bringing to those who reject Him. So there's safety in being close to God, isn't there? Safety in being close to a wrathful God because we love Him and we want to be close to Him and we want to respond to His warnings and we want to respond to His Son, Jesus, and we want to submit our lives in Him, to Him in faith. There's safety in the one who is wrathful because he's also our deliverer. He's our only deliverer. And then verse 8 concludes this particular section. It says, But with an overflowing flood, he might make a complete end? No, that's not what my Bible says. He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. There's some figurative language going on here where we're talking about Yahweh God engulfing, figuratively, but overflowing and engulfing his enemies in darkness, in wrath, and in judgment. It's complete. It's final. It's not, well, we might, we might survive. Maybe if we could get to a high place, or maybe if we could do this or that. No, there's no escape from a wrathful God because the flood will be overflowing. The end will be complete. His enemies will be pursued. 
How do we think about this? How do we think about God being our only deliverer? Well, I might sound like a bit of a broken record, but we should be trembling again. We should both tremble at God's inescapable and destructive wrath, and we should also rejoice at His deliverance of all those who trust in and find refuge in Him. As we both rejoice and tremble, we will have the proper posture toward our God who pours out His holy wrath as the divine warrior on those who reject Him, but who also reveals His goodness to those who take refuge in Him. We should marvel at that. We should rejoice and we should be trembling. What's the epilogue on the city of Nineveh? Well, as prophesied, as promised, as declared in Nahum and in Nahum 1 and of course 2 and 3, which go into more detail, the city of Nineveh was destroyed. No surprise there. God's word has never been broken. He's never given a prophecy that has not or will not be fulfilled. The city really was destroyed 50 years later, around 612 B.C. The Assyrian Empire had reached its zenith, and all of its sort of vassal states said, let's gather together and let's take them down. And they rebelled against Assyria, and the Babylonians took care of it and, and really made a very swift end to the city of Nineveh in 612 B.C. But it wasn't just the Babylonians. God's sovereign will, especially His will, His wrathful will in creation, played a significant part. It's interesting that Nahum mentions in verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversary. It's very, very interesting because the way that the Babylonians were able to get into the city of Nineveh, which until this time seemed impregnable, it seemed just completely invulnerable. Well, guess what? Its particular location on the Tigris River, which seemed to be strategic, ended up being its downfall because the Tigris River in modern-day Iraq overflowed, and it began to eat away and weaken the walls such that the Babylonians were able to get in. And once they were in, as we all know, that was the end. Once the enemy is inside the gates, it's game over. That's exactly what happened. It's also interesting that Nahum, in Nahum 3.11, mentions that Nineveh would be hidden upon its destruction. Very specific, very interesting prophecy. Well, this prophecy was also fulfilled. The city of Nineveh was so completely demolished, not just by the river and not just by the Babylonians, but just by just utter destruction, fire and, and just collapse, that the entire site was hidden until 2,400 years later when someone stumbled upon it in 1842. No one could find it. There was even some doubt. Is the city of Nineveh an actual place? We haven't, been, we haven't found it. We don't, we don't know if it really exists. Where is it? We can't find it. Well, Bible scholars were saying, well, it's 311. It's, it's going to be hidden for a while. So it, will, it may turn up eventually. It might not. We don't need it to be found for the Bible to be true. But 1842, someone started digging and they found part of the wall. It had been so inundated by the river and so completely demolished by the Babylonians, etc., it was hidden for over two millennia. God's word is true. And God's word 
will always be fulfilled. How do we, where where we go from here? Where we go from this? Learning about the wrath of God as one of the attributes of God, which of course, His wrath flows from His holiness, as we talked about last week. How do we respond to this? Well, there's, there's two there's two appropriate responses, and there's really two types of people who are hearing this message. There are those of us, those of, uh, of, of people, whether it be in this congregation or who are listening right now, there are those who don't believe in this wrathful God. They haven't bowed the knee yet. They're unbelievers. They haven't submitted. They haven't believed. Here's the truth. Our sin offends the holy God. If you are here tonight and you have not reconciled yourself with God through Jesus Christ, you are destined for the wrath that we have just read about in this passage. This type of wrath. The the God we have read about tonight is a wrathful God against those who have rejected Him and who continue to rebel against Him. Jesus Christ is the only answer to our sin problem. He is the only one who can save us. You can turn there if you like, or you can just sit back and listen, but Romans 5, Romans 5, verses 6 through 9, is very informative for us in terms of where we were before Christ, what Christ has done in relationship to the wrath of God, and where we go from here. Romans 5, 6 through 9 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is, those who were under wrath. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, even while we were still under wrath, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified, that is, declared legally righteous by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from what? The wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Those who have been reconciled are no longer under wrath, but those who have not been reconciled are under His wrath. That's the message for unbelievers. But what about us as believers? Well, take heart. Christ's death has redeemed and justified us through His blood. He has delivered us from the wrath of God, has He not? What is the only appropriate response? We should worship, exactly. We should rejoice greatly. And also we should share the hope of our Deliverer to everyone we can until He comes to take us home. And when He does come again, He will bring terrible, terrible, terrible judgment upon those who reject Him. But, 
for those of us who he has reconciled, we can rejoice that we are no longer under his wrath. Truly the Lord is good, is he not? Truly he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so if you have not been reconciled, if you are still under wrath, if you're sitting here tonight and you've just realized that you are under wrath, what do you do? Well, as we sang earlier, we sang about being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Friend, if you have not been washed yet, you need to be washed. You need to be washed. God is our divine warrior. His wrathful character necessitates this role in all of creation. He is the divine warrior. He is also the divine creator. And thankfully, He is our only deliverer. I pray that you would turn to Him tonight if you have not already. Let's pray. Yahweh God, surely You are the divine warrior, the divine creator, and our only deliverer. We marvel at who You are. We stand in awe of Your wrathful character. We've read tonight about Your intervention in the natural order. Your intervention against Your enemies and thanks be to God, Your intervention through Your Son, Jesus Christ, into humanity. Because You sent Your Son, Jesus, to die in our place, we are no longer under Your wrath, but rather, we are reconciled. Lord, I pray if there be anyone here tonight who has not been washed in the blood of the Lamb, that they would be tonight. We pray for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.